It's a joy to be with you this morning, church. There is perhaps not a more relatable, widespread human condition than that of anxiety. A piece of clothing I saw often while I worked on college campuses was either a hoodie or a t-shirt that read, fueled by iced coffee and anxiety. We have specific anxiety about things that are common to life. Every one of us does. We can be anxious about our jobs, unexpected finances, bills, about our health, a test that is coming up. But something that we've become more and more aware over the past decades is a kind of vague anxiety that we carry. This sort of undefined dread that's hard to explain. A fear over the state of the world, perpetually overwhelmed by this vague anxiety. It just constantly eats away at us. If we think back to around 800 years ago, before the printing press was invented, before the telegraph, before the radio, the most a person would worry about was very small local matters right around them. Apart from extraordinary events, little thought was given to what was going on in another country. But in our modern culture, congratulations. We get to be anxious about everything. We get nearly instant communication of all events around the world. And this can be a great thing, but it can also be a crockpot of anxiety spilling over, never ending. And if the belief and worldview of secular humanism that is so prevalent today, if it is true, it makes sense as to why human hearts would be this breeding ground for anxiety. Pastor R.C. Sproul reflects on this condition. Having been hurled or thrown chaotically into life with no sense of purpose or destiny, that sense of being cast in a meaningless way into life eats away at our soul day in and day out. Children go to school and their teacher tells them the universe and human life came into being through macroevolution. They are told that they are cosmic accidents and they're grown-up germs sitting on a wheel of, vast, of a vast cosmic machine destined for annihilation. They are told they come from nothingness and their future is nothingness. And this eats away at their own sense of significance. This is this vague anxiety. Sociologists, long before the invention of the internet and social media, so much of which, which plagues us today, they have already dubbed the modern age that we live in an age of anxiety. We're fearful over the future and what it holds. We're overwhelmed in the present and all that we have to do. We look back at the past and cringe with regret. With all these reasons to fret. Do we just accept this perpetual anxiety? Do we, is it the norm? Do we, do we medicate ourselves into numbness and, and settle on this being just the way of life? And yet today, we're going to see that Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. He tells us this also. Do not be anxious about your life. I think sometimes as Christians, because I see this happening in my own heart, we know the right answer. We know we shouldn't be anxious. We know we can trust God. But in reality, it just kind of becomes something we say. Not what we are banking on. Not our only hope. These truths, they begin to fade into the background and in the forefront of our minds is what we're really going to do to fix this situation. 
in the forefront of our minds is what resources do I have or what resources can I get that will really solve my problem? We're kind of like kids that are told biblical truths from their parents. It's better to give than receive. And we respond with, sure, dad, sure, mom. We're just looking forward to opening up presents. We lose the long view. We lose the meaning, and we just focus on the immediate and the practical right in front of us. And all of a sudden, God is not our object of trust. What are you anxious about? What keeps you up at night? What occupies your mind with worry and with fear? Jesus shows us that the affections of our heart, our anxieties and our trusts are ultimately tied to what we treasure, what we love and cherish. So if you want to learn something about yourself, if you think about what causes your anxiousness, and you trace it back to your heart, there you will find whatever it is that you treasure. If you find in your heart that what you are treasuring is not Jesus, then you can sure be sure that what you do treasure will be a big reason for your anxiousness, will be a big reason for your worry and your fears. Jesus wants us to be rid of anxiety. He wants us to trust him. But he loves us so much that he doesn't just command us to not be anxious and leave it at that. He gives us reasons. He gives us assurance that we can have our full faith in him. We're not purposeless, grown-up germs destined for annihilation, devoid of meaning. No, Jesus came to redefine life, to show that true life is found in him. And a life that has been changed by Christ is full of reasons to trust him with everything. He holds the future. He holds your present and the past. In him we find true purpose, not just for this short life on earth, but for the life to come, for eternity. And when our treasure is found in him, we will have no reason to be anxious. Let's pray that God would open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear these truths this morning. Dear God, we are so prone to distrust. We are so prone to cling to whatever is in front of us, thinking that it will satisfy. God, we, we craft broken cisterns that can't even hold water, but yet you are ever-flowing fountain that never ends. Help us to, to love you. Help us to savor you. Help us to see that you are real and practical and help us with every need, our every worry, our every anxiety. Transform our lives this morning for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 22 if you want to follow along. Last week, uh, we saw, we've been going through Luke and we saw the folly of a rich fool who lived as if there was no God. And he tore down his barns and he built bigger barns and he got more for himself so that he could live and eat and drink and be merry and be proud of all his possessions. He did not consider what God would require of him. He did not consider how he could love others. And he did not consider that that night his life would be taken from him. And he would not enjoy all these fortunes that he had saved up for himself. Jesus warns the crowd against coveting, that life is not found in the abundance of our possessions. But what follows today and what we'll be looking at today are Jesus' words, not for the crowds, but for his disciples. 
He's speaking to Christians. And if you look in verse 22, you see the word therefore, noting that this passage serves as a culmination of the much of Jesus' teaching from prior weeks. In the beginning of chapter 11, if you want to flip back, we saw that the followers of Christ, they were to pray for their daily bread, their daily provision, asking that, that his kingdom come, his will be done. In verses 11, 13 of chapter 11, we saw the comparison of earthly parents with God who provide for their children. If we who are evil can give good gifts, how much more will God give good gifts to his children? Earlier in chapter 9 and 10, we saw he sent out his disciples. He sent out the 12. He sent out the 72. And what did he ask of them? He told them to take no provision. Take only one tunic, showing that their provision was only to come from the Lord. They were not to trust in their things. If you remember back to Luke 8, we saw this parable of the sower and how seeds were, that represented the gospel message were sown upon the ground. And we saw four different responses that the human heart can have. And we saw in verse 14, As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. Cares about riches, these were the thorns that choked out the good and gospel fruit. Ever since Jesus has come on the scene, we've seen what many theologians call the great reversal, where the poor and the despised and the outcast, they are the ones who receive the kingdom. They are the ones who receive Jesus for who he is. But the, the prominent, the self-righteous, the self-sufficient rich who see no need for a Savior, just like the rich fool, they will lose all that they treasure. And I want us to remember this pattern, this theme running throughout Luke, just how often earthly riches and heavenly treasure comes up. No other gospel author speaks more about the deceitfulness of riches than Luke. And Jesus spoke about these pitfalls over and over again for a reason. We need to have ears to hear them. Jesus, as he considered what he was asking of the disciples, he knew what he was asking of them. And he told them to take up their cross and to follow him. He knew they would be prone to anxiety. He knew that they would become easily fixated on what they could control, fixated on their worldly treasure and provision. So today in our text, we're going to be seeing seven reasons why disciples of Christ can live without anxiety. The first reason is that there's so much more to this life than what we have. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, in the body more than clothing. We've seen how the rich of this world, they think in terms of gathering and getting surplus. But Jesus thinks in terms of our necessities. What do we need? Clothing and shelter, these are representative basic needs of humanity. These are things that disciples in an agrarian society with no grocery store to go to would be prone to fret about. And life is far more than these things. Many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we actually don't get stressed out about our needs like these. A lot of times we're stressed about our wants. We're stressed about our preferences. 
for many places in the world, just to have a change tray sitting there for weeks or months on end with money that is not spent, this, is, this would be incomprehensible in many places in the world. And the call to go forth with the gospel, Jesus' disciples, they could become worried about where their food and clothing would come from. And all of a sudden, these things become the focus. And it distorts their purpose of life, the purpose of their mission. Clothes, food, cars, shelter, all of these things only exist rightfully if their very purpose is to serve us in glorifying God. When they become the aim, we lose the purpose. It's not that thought and planning is the problem. Jesus isn't condemning food prep and wardrobe updates. It's the angst over these things, things that will not satisfy us, things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Life is so much more than food and clothing, so much more than cars and houses. One rabbi rightly noted that the greater the possessions, the greater the worries. Is this not true? This helps explain why so many millionaires and billionaires are miserable people. We just made the most expensive purchase of our lives this week in buying a car. And at times, dropping money on something so expensive was nerve-wracking. And I could look at Carfax till I was blue in the face. I could check all the details, make sure it had one owner. I could even call the former owner. I could interrogate the dealership. But none of it gave me assurances that this vehicle will last. And it was so refreshing to be able to take my thoughts captive and just to say, it's just a car. Life is so much more than this. The only assurance I have is that my God is with me and that he will provide. When we become anxious and consumed by the stresses of stuff, we lose the purpose of life. And they reveal to us that, that God is not what we are, who we are treasuring. Life is so much more than these things, brothers and sisters. Reason number two why disciples of Christ can live without anxiety is because of God's sovereign provision for even the smallest of creatures. As Jesus was teaching on the Judean countryside, in my sanctified imagination, I picture ravens coming and going, landing, looking for food, and, and Jesus just naturally pointing to them. And saying, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? This week I made it a personal task to consider the ravens. I went outside and I literally considered some ravens. It turned out to be more considering ibis, green herons, sometimes pelicans. But these beautiful birds... They don't till soil. They don't plant crops. They have no refrigerator or pantry. They pay very little attention to the stock market and the state of the economy. Birds are unable to control what they need for the basic necessities of life. And yet God feeds them. God takes care of them. They're not malnourished. They're not lacking. A particular note as we think about ravens in Jesus' day. These animals were considered unclean according to the law. They would probably be shooed away if, if by the people if they landed near them. 
Jesus' point here is that if God so abundantly provides for insignificant, unclean ravens, how much more will he provide for his people who are of much more value than birds? Beloved, God values you greatly. He cares for you. He cares for his creation. None is forgotten. Even the smallest things are not overlooked. Over the smallest things, God sovereignly reigns. Do you believe that this morning? Do you hold that deep down in your heart? How can we be anxious as we hold these truths? Children, I want you to think about, as you see birds flying, I want you to stop and consider just how good God is to take care of those little birds. Their beautiful feathers, their colors, their chirps and their melodies. He made them. He provides for them. If he provides for these little birds who are unable to take care of themselves in the way that we are, just how much will he provide for those who follow him? Reason number three, we can live without anxiety, is because Jesus speaks of its futility. Worry and anxiety are not simply unhealthy and unfaithful. They're utterly pointless. It's been said that anxiety is like a rocking chair, right? It gives you something to do, but you're not going to go very far. Verse 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Our anxious worry can do nothing to add to our longevity. In fact, due to its adverse health effects, it can only serve to shorten our lives. In all of our stress and toil, we are so completely not in control of our lives that we can't even add an additional hour. Not even such a small feat is within our grasp. As you reflect on your anxiety, has it helped you at all? Has it made life better? You know there is no value in anxious worry. I'm probably not even helping you in telling you that. But what Jesus reminds us of here is that part of defeating our anxiety is by rehearsing just how pointless it is. He wants us to slow down. He wants us to acknowledge our lack of control of even adding one second to our earthly lives and rest in his provision. Jesus moves to the fourth reason in verse 27. We've considered the ravens. Now Jesus asks us to consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus' rebuke shows us that our anxiety is ultimately a lack of faith. I just think about how maybe some people receive Jesus hearing these teachings. Maybe even how we receive some of these teachings today. Can't you just see an anxious person hearing these words from Jesus? Worked up in frantic disbelief that this great teacher in his profound wisdom has told him, in your anxiety, just go observe the birds. Observe the flowers. The school of nature is a beautiful thing in which we can draw valuable lessons 
God's creation corresponds with reality. It attests and proclaims his glory. Grass is frequently used in the Old Testament as a symbol for the temporary nature of life. We see in the Psalms that fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. We see in Isaiah, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. If you're looking for a gift that lasts a long time, I've found out there's some good wisdom for you. Flowers are not the purchase that you make. They don't last very long. And practically, wood was of short supply and relatively scarce in Israel. And so flowers and grass were often used to be thrown into the oven so that people could bake their bread. And yet these simple, temporary, easily disposed of flowers, just by existing, outshine the most magnificent of Israel's king. Matt read earlier the, the wonderful glory of Solomon that left the queen of Sheba breathless. And yet Jesus is pointing to these beautiful lilies that would be all over the countryside as even greater than him. These lilies, they don't toil or spin. They're not out there with their sewing machines pumping out petals to meet deadlines or production quotas. They're not punching time clocks at the factory. They are simply beautiful, just as God made them to be. Our takeaway is not that we shouldn't work hard. Work's a good thing for us. But in life, we're not to be anxious. We're not to have fear about providing for ourselves. It's not a, the argument is not against working. It's against worry. Where will the money come from? Where will we live? When will I get a spouse? What will I do if I lose my spouse? What will happen with my children? These flowers, they rebuke our anxious thoughts just by existing in their beautiful simplicity. Christian, if he cares for these little disposable flowers enough to intricately make them beautiful and colorful, how much more will he care for you? These flowers, they aren't able to take hold of the promises of God. They aren't able to know God's word. They don't have his spirit within them. We as Christians, we're not to be vacillating between faith and doubt whether God will care for us. God cares about their intricate beauty of these small flowers. Each unique color and shape beholds his glory. How much more will he care for you? Next time you walk outside, smell the roses. Take some time. Consider the lilies. There's no detail overlooked by our Heavenly Father. His providential care is over all. We see the fifth reason in verse 29 and what is probably the one that has filled my heart the most this week as I prepared for this. We see that God is a perfect, loving Father who knows every one of our needs. Verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. 
Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. We're not to seek out the things of this earth. We're not to be preoccupied by them. Jesus says it's the nations of the earth that are preoccupied. He's talking about the pagans. He's talking about people that don't have God and know God. This is what they are dwelling on. This is what they are worrying about. What to eat, what to drink. I think for us living in a wealthy society today, Jesus might substitute, do not worry about your square footage. Do not worry about your savings or what you will drive. We're not to be after these things. We're to seek first his kingdom. We're to be preoccupied with thinking about that which is eternal, that which will last forever. And when we do that, God will take care of our every need. Beloved, so often we have a small, such a small view of what our life is to be. We live for to-do lists. We live to solve problems. We're seeking and grabbing whatever tends to be our most comfort. Instead of walking in faithfulness with our eyes on him. In your anxiousness, in your worry, what if I told you that every second of your life, Jesus is with you? At your lowest your weakest points, he never leaves your side. What if I told you that you had a perfect and loving father that knows your every need? He knows them more than you do. And he promises to abundantly take care of you. If this was true, why would we be afraid of anything? It is nothing but true. The grass wither withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Take your eyes off of your anxious needs. Turn them to behold your loving Father who knows every one of your needs inside and out, who knows you and your most intricate of needs. Seek first his kingdom. Leverage your time, your relationships, your possessions, your energy, all for him. Do you doubt that he will not see you through? Do you doubt that a life in pursuit of him will not give you the most joy? The Almighty Father, God of heavens and earth, who sustains your every heartbeat, who grows our faith day by day, who grows our small little church in his time by his word, he is the rock that our hearts can rest in. Our trust in him frees us not to worry as this world does. Sometimes, growing up in church, familiarity breeds contempt. You hear something so much that it loses its power. It loses its meaning and its force and its weight. Let me just tell you, it is a revolutionary thing that God is called Father to begin with. But it's even more amazing, even more jaw-dropping, that he's not just Father. He's your father. Do not lose sight of this. And what we are prone to do is we, we think of the way that we've been loved imperfectly by our fathers or others, and we attribute to God that same type of love. We're always projecting the way others love us onto God. Maybe we see him as a disapproving father, a father who has high demands and little grace, who wants us to work and toil and stress so that we can be good in his eyes. Beloved, this is not God. 
Look in verse 32. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Nobody loves us like God. The gospel is scandalous. He delights to give you his greatest. He does not hold back from his good gifts. This is the heart of God. Dwell on that this week. He delights to see you flourish. All the most wonderful attributes belong to him in fullness of measure. And he is your father. He says, I will be with you. I will take care of you as your perfect father who loves you, who values you, who providentially assists your every need, who loved you enough to send his only son to go to the cross, to die for your sins so that you could be adopted into my family, so that you could have new life in me as my child, so that you could fear not, so that you could live a life free of anxiety, trusting in the one who defeated sin and death. The one who breathes galaxies into existence says, trust me. Says, seek my kingdom first. Don't pursue treasures you can't keep. Labor and strive over that which is eternal. And it's my delight to give my children the kingdom of God. What a wonderful father. If God gives us the greatest thing, eternal salvation for our souls, how can we not trust him in the lesser things? If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in this good father, and you find yourself maybe more preoccupied with the things of the world, I, I just want you to know that Jesus came to save sinners. He came to change hearts, to transform our purpose for living. He's a loving God. And in his love, he's a just father. He always upholds righteousness. And part of that being just is that he will pour out wrath on all sin, on all those that reject his good and righteous rule. Repent of your sins. Rest on his provision alone for your only righteousness before God, and you will be saved through the atoning blood of Christ. In Christ, you can be adopted into his family. You can share in his inheritance. You can be embraced in his everlasting arms. It would be my joy, um, any member here, to talk to you after the service about how you can know your heavenly father. When David says that he goes to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What's the reason that he gives for not fearing? Is it because he was really brave? Is it because the valley of the shadow of death is not really all that daunting? People hyped it up? No. It says, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Our heavenly Father is always, always with his children. The sixth reason we can live without anxiety and this one's one that maybe we're, small one, maybe that we're, be easy to miss. It's that he calls us his little flock. Verse 32, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I don't want us to miss just how tenderly our father speaks of his children. The good shepherd calls us his little flock. This name shows us that he recognizes our weakness. 
It shows us just how much we are loved despite them. He knows our struggles. He knows our fears, our tendency to to be sheep. (laughs) And yet we're his chosen people. We're his prized possession. Even though we are little, even though we are insignificant to the world, we are cherished by the king of all creation. He loves us and prizes us in our weakness and in our littleness. He supplies his strength. Brothers and sisters, he loves us in our weakness, and yet we are a part of his little flock. And the seventh and final reason that we can live without anxiety is that our treasure is found in heaven. Jesus ends his teaching on anxiety by focusing on what we treasure. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When the instinct is to hoard and to build up for ourselves, Jesus tells his disciples to sell their possessions. He tells them to give to the needy, the exact opposite of what you would expect if you're trying to secure your future. He says, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old. Money bags or a purse was a metaphor for the money that they contained. Money that is invested in the kingdom of God is treasure that will not fade away. It cannot be stolen by thieves. It cannot be ruined by moths. Our investments in the kingdom of God are forever. Nothing in this world apart from treasure in heaven is is worthy of this ultimate investment. Nothing in this world is safe from theft decay, or corruption. The stuff that we live for now, how much will it matter in 10, 50, or 100 years? I think back, uh, I wasn't there. (laughs) I about said during the Civil War. Uh, Yeah, I think back on the Civil War. Uh, (laughs) It was a hard time. Um, But in the South, they they made their own currency in the South. The Confederate money was used as the dollar in those Confederate states. But when it became apparent that the South was, would lose the war, all that money was going to lose all of its value. The best people could do was try to spend it now from those that would take it. Because after the war ended and slavery was abolished, that money would be worthless. I love you. I love you. I don't want you to live a life for treasure and wealth that will one day lose all of its value. I want you to live for never-ending joy. I want you to invest all that you can in the kingdom of God. If you're investing in his kingdom, if you're building up his church, loving and giving generously to the poor, our hearts will be focused on our king. God's kingdom is to be the defining purpose for for Jesus' disciples. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to find out more about what you treasure in your heart, take a look at your bank statements. What we spend our money on gives us a picture of what we truly value. You cannot serve God in money. If your treasure is built on anything but Christ, it's sinking sand. You're building on a foundation of dandelions that will be thrown into the oven tomorrow. When we die, 
we're going to either be united with our greatest treasure or we're going to lose it entirely. If our hearts do not recognize God as the owner of our possessions, then our possessions will own us. What are you most heavily invested in this morning? God's kingdom or building your own? How often do you find yourself concerned about his kingdom, his glory? Tell you what, Covenant Hope, I'm I'm so encouraged by your sacrificial serving and giving. I don't know how much you give, but I do know that I have a job, and that's only because you love the Lord. It's only because you value his word and, and you care for me. I see you sacrificially serve the poor and be willing to give and help those in need. Thank you for treasuring his kingdom above yours. Very nature of possessions, as we think about them, they're restricting, they're confining. This idea of American dream, we we need to repent of, we need to turn from. Your happiness will never be found in your earthly treasures. There's only one treasure that's worth selling everything to get. Seek first the kingdom of God. He will supply your every need. Give yourself to accumulate treasure in God's economy that will never expire. When we sell our possessions and we provide for the poor, our freedom from anxiety is demonstrated. We give generously to the poor. Trust in his vision. As we do this, you can watch your anxiety fade away. So often I think after I've been anxious or worried about something in particular, man, it's really got my heart stressed. And then all of a sudden it happens, right? The, the car gets purchased or I pass the test or whatever worry it was. And I think, why did I worry so much about that? I think that's what it will be like when we behold our Savior's face in heaven. And we reflect back on this life. Why did I stress about life? Why did I give myself and time to futility and not trust in my loving Father's perfect provision. He held me every step of the way. Jesus went to the cross. He trusted in his Father's provision. We can go and live for his kingdom no matter what obedience would call us to. Our kind Father will supply everything his little flock needs. Let's do all within the short time that we have and given on this earth to live for his kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a worthy and good king. Thank you that you don't leave us to be enslaved to our sin. You don't leave us to be enslaved to our stuff. But you point us to a greater life, an eternal life, an infinite hope. God, help us to treasure you above all else. And from that treasuring of you, may we be an outflow of love, generosity, kindness to the city, to our neighbors, to all that we come across. May lives be changed for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.